0: Start with a running start, verse 9, and go in uh, through verse 16. Listen as I read God's word. Paul writes Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order to be a burden, in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You're witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blamelessly we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and be able to worship you. Thank you for the freedom that we gather in. Lord, as our culture in this nation celebrates this week, the the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Lord, we pray that we would be grateful for this land that we live in, that we would be thankful for it, that we would be the best citizens that this country could ever have. Uh, not because we serve this country first and foremost, but because we serve you first and foremost. And when we serve you the best, we serve everyone else and every, uh, everything else the best as well. So Lord, may we be the best citizens. And may we also remember the freedom that we have in you, an ultimate freedom, not just simply a political freedom of a particular nation, but freedom that comes from the weight of our sin being removed by what you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, may that be the most important freedom to us this week, the most important independence to declare. God, we're also grateful for this church and the ministries of this church. Thank you for our pastor, Kevin Kozlowski, who is away with his family this week. We pray that you would bless him today as they, as they worship in another church, that they would be refreshed and strengthened for the work of the ministry that they do here. Lord, we thank you for Hope Church. As they gather this morning at this very hour, Lord, would you be encouraging them? We thank you for their desire to take the, uh, the gospel into a nearby community. And Lord, would you bless them as they grow and, and build that church? And Lord, as we study your word, we pray that you would bless us. May we use this time to, to learn more about you. May you speak to us through your word. May we be strengthened by it. May we filter everything that's going on in our lives through it. And may we be changed. or it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So earlier this week, uh, we were digging through one of the closets here at, at Faith, and we came upon this lectern Bible, of the first independent church of Wilmington, Delaware. Now, if you know any of your faith church history, you'll know that the name of this church, from its founding in 1936 to about 1951, was the first independent church of Wilmington, Delaware. And so this was just in a box in one of the closets, but in all likelihood this was a Bible that stood at the front of the sanctuary in those early years of the church. We weren't meeting here at the time. A Bible that could have been used for the public reading of Scripture, a Bible at the very least that was a symbol and a reminder that the foundation of that church and everything that our forefathers would have wanted this church to be, the foundation is the very Word of God. Now, it's interesting. I mean, that's a pretty cool, cool find, and we'll probably have it around, and maybe it'll replace the, the, the Bible that we typically have up here at the, at the front. But it's a particularly appropriate find, I think, in light of the text that we just read, because in this text, in verse 13, you saw that Paul makes the contrast between the Word of man and the Word of God. And that really is a very important question. That's a really important question distinction, right? The words that Paul is writing here, the message that he brought to the Thessalonians when he visited this city, right? It's important to ask yourself, what kind of word was that? Was, were they the words of men, or was it, the, was it the word of God? It makes a big difference. Actually, it makes a very big difference for the next 30 minutes as you sit here, <laughs> right? Because if Paul's message is the, if it's just, if they're just the words of men, then you might listen with polite attention. You might even l- listen with some interest, but, but ultimately you should listen with a very, very strong sense of suspicion. And I don't mean that negatively. You should. If it's just the words of men, if it's just me speaking, well, then you really should be suspect because human beings err. They make mistakes. And so if it's true, then you should listen with a lot of suspicion. But, but to the extent that whatever I say is actually what this says, if it's the Word of God, well, then that, that makes a difference. Because if, if Paul's message really is the Word of God, then our listening is, is different. Even, even if, at this particular moment, you sit here and you say, I'm not sure I believe in God at all, you'd still have to admit, wouldn't you, that, that if it were if there were such a God who was speaking to you, you would listen to that God differently than if it was just your buddy talking to you. Right? Think about that. If you accept, if you accept for the sake of argument, the proposition that there is an all-knowing, all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, accept, just for, for the sake of argument, that such a God were to exist, and that, that, that this being is a being who pursues perfect justice and is defined as perfect love. If that being were true, would you listen? I'm sure you would now i 'm not going to go through what we 're doing here a detailed analysis of of why you should trust paul 's message in the Bible to be the, be the Word of God in the, in the sense of doing a lot of historical work there 's good historical work that 's been done there 's good work in the in the manuscripts there 's good biblical theology that 's been done to show how the, the scripture clearly, clearly testifies to itself that that is exactly what it is that it is the is the Word of God, but we're going to take a more experiential kind of tack this morning because that's really what Paul is doing here. Now, I don't mean experiential in the sense that, that one's experience becomes the ultimate judge as to whether or not this is the Word of God, but what Paul does point out is several things that the message does because it is true. In other words, because it is the Word of God, there is experiential effect that happens as, as a result. And and that that experience, that transformation that happens to the person who believes the Word of God becomes a testimony that points back to its its truth. Now, for clarity, what what is the message that Paul's talking about here, that he's claiming to to be the Word of God, that they received? Well, it's the message, and I'm drawing here from Paul's own words back in chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, verses 8, 9, 10. It's the message that there is a living and true God that we were created to serve, who is rightly offended by our decision to serve false gods instead, but who, in his mercy, saved us by sending his Son to live, to die, to rise again, so that we might be saved, by Paul's words in verse 10, saved from the coming wrath. And then who transforms us, transforms anyone who puts their hope and their faith in that rescue. That's the message. That's what Paul calls the gospel, right? That we were created to serve a living and true God, who is rightly displeased when we serve other gods instead, who sent His Son to live, die, and rise again from the dead so that we can be saved from the coming wrath, and that who transforms us as a result of our belief in that rescue so that we're different than we were before. So my thesis, then, is that this transformation that happens testifies to the fact that the message that Paul was proclaiming is true, that it is actually the Word of God. It doesn't make it true but it is a testimony, a witness to the fact that it is. Because Paul is showing us that this message transforms the way we live, transforms the way that we suffer for him, and transforms the way that we serve other people. Transforms our living, transforms our suffering, transforms our serving. Now, let's look at each of them. So, Paul's preaching, Paul's message He is claiming that he was preaching is the Word of God, and we see that because it transforms the way that we live. Look back at verse 13. These people in Thessalonica received the Word of God, Paul says, as it actually was, as the Word of God. Paul says, which is at work in you who believe. So Paul was seeing something. He was seeing the Word of God at work. It was working. It was was changing them, which is why, in verse 11, Paul is able to say, in the same way that a father would would, would, would love his children, would deal with his children, Paul's able to say that he can encourage, he can, he can comfort, he can urge the Thessalonians to live lives that are worthy of God. Now, all three of those words, encouraging, comforting, urging, they're all very strong in their, in their emphasis, but the word translated as urging is probably the strongest. It's, it's a word that practically meets, means to insist on something, to insist on a particular course of action. Now, what would that course of action be? Paul says it's to, to live lives worthy of God. Well, what does that mean? What specifically he talking about? Well, he's talking about obedience to God's law. Now, not as a means to gain favor with God, but as a right expression of what happens when one puts their faith in the rescue of God that he has done for us in Jesus. Now, he doesn't explicitly say that it's obedience to God's moral law here, but, but this urging, urging to live a life worthy is a, is a common theme in Paul's writings. Probably the most, most prominent, most significant, the easiest to see is in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you to live a life worthy. Same words. And if you remember how, the letter, how Paul's letter to the Ephesians works, the first three chapters of that letter, the first half of it, are devoted to explaining this gospel, to explaining his message. The grace of God that transforms us, that, that though we were dead in our sins, makes us alive in Christ and, and equips us and changes us. And Paul urges in those first three chapters us to believe in that grace of God. But then in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, he, he pivots, he hinges there, And he says, okay, if you believe that, it's going to transform your living. And so I urge you, in light of that, to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And so then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he then goes on to explain what that holy living looks like. How it is living in conformity with the law of God. Not because, because we have to live in conformity in order to earn our salvation, in order to earn our rescue but because anyone who truly believes that rescue has happened on their behalf and, given, and has been given to them freely by grace is going to want to change. They're going to be transformed by believing it. Now, just to be clear, if this message, this message of our gracious rescue from the just displeasure of a holy God, if, if, it, if it isn't true, if it's not really the word of God, if there is no God to whom we're accountable, if he doesn't exist or he doesn't speak to us, then there really isn't a whole lot of sense in trying to bring every area of your life into conformity with the law of God. I mean, you can choose, choose, take the parts you like, take the parts you don't like, and kind of see what's helpful and what's not helpful and just sort of go, go from there. It's just one philosophy among many philosophies. But if this is the Word of God, if it is true, then that's different. Some of you might remember us talking before about Rosaria Butterfield. She was a a tenured English professor 20 years ago, Syracuse, New York. She was secure in her career. She was happy in her lifestyle. She was confident in her belief that the Bible was very much not the Word of God. In fact, she believed very strongly that it was the Word of men, and not just men, confused men, oppressive men, evil men, until she was actually encouraged to read the Bible. She wasn't looking to be changed, quite honestly, from her own, by her own admission. From what she knew of the Bible, she wouldn't like the change that it would ask her to make anyway. But because she was trained as a scholar of literature, or she actually said, well, let, let, me, let me actually read it. Someone encouraged her to read it. She said, well, I'm good at this. I'll go back and read the source material. She wanted to see, she wanted to understand why this, this book had deluded so many people, why it had led them astray. And so she read it several times, as an English professor would, from beginning to end. Multiple different translations. And she was trying to approach it from a literary perspective, but what she found is it actually began to do something to her. One day she was at her house with a, a large group of friends. were over They were over for a party, and she went into the kitchen to get something, and one of her friends followed her into the room and, 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 and put his hand on, on hers and said, Rosaria, something is changing you. This Bible reading that you're doing, it's changing you. And you need to tell me what's going on with you because I'm worried that I'm losing you. And and Rosaria said she sat down. She said her head was kind of spinning. She felt a little bit nauseous. And and she said, said, well, you're right. She said, I'm reading the Bible. And she said, I'm reading a lot. And I keep coming back to this question. What if it's true? What if it's true? Because we're in big trouble if it's true. You see what her friend said to her? what, What her friend saw in her? She saw the very beginning of what would be a complete transformation in her life. That's what the Word of God does, but it only does it if it's true. That's the first thing to know. The Word of God, if it's true, transforms the way, the way we live. But also, secondly, it transforms the way we suffer, specifically when we suffer for Him. Now, this might not seem to logically follow at first, but it does. Paul's message transforms our suffering, specifically the kind of suffering that the Thessalonians were were enduring because their belief that Paul's message was the word of God and not the word of man. It meant, it meant, that as they began to believe that, that others began to think differently about them. Others began to think of them poorly. Others began to treat them poorly. Look again at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things these churches suffered from the Jews, now you see what happened when the Thessalonian Christians believed in paul 's message that it was the Word of God, and that message began to change them when change actually began to happen in them as a result of believing this message, they joined the club it was the, it was the suffering church club and and like the first churches that had been formed in Jerusalem and in the surrounding suburbs of of Jerusalem, like those first churches in, in Judea, they were suffering as a result of their belief in the message that Paul was preaching. Now most likely in Thessalonica the suffering was taking the form of social rejection, verbal abuse, false accusations, possibly to the point in some cases of physical harm or even, even death, but, but, but in most cases it was just starting as being excluded from the, the everyday workings of society and of culture. See, in many of these Roman, Roman cities of the ancient world, particularly high commerce cities like Thessalonica, a person's ability to participate in the economic and the social life of the community depended upon their participation in the worship of the Roman gods in the Roman temples. And so if one were to become convinced by the means of Paul's message that the word of God was true, then these Roman gods, by definition, were false, false. And the religious rites that the people were being asked to participate in in these temples was by definition wrong. But there would be a significant cost to that. You'd lose your job. Your reputation might be ruined. People would get mad at you. They might try to hurt you. They might actually succeed in hurting you. But think about this. If Paul's message weren't true, if it, if, if it weren't the word of God, then why, why would they endure something like that? Why would you endure something like that? Why would you even why would why should you? Because you enjoy pain? Because you like conflict? I mean, some people might, but but that's that's pretty dumb. I mean, it, suffering for a lie is not brave. At best it's tragic to suffer for a lie because you're deluded. At best it's tragic. But at worst it's downright foolish. Right? But If Paul's message really is the Word of God, if it really is true, then it transforms the way that you view that kind of suffering because it gives you a confidence and a conviction that you're not suffering for a lie, you're suffering for the truth. It's an often cited scene from the life of of Martin Luther, but in 1521, so four years after he began the significant protest against the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, in 1521 Martin Luther was brought to trial because of his writings about the message that paul had been teaching because of because of of his belief and his his proclaiming that there is rescue from god's wrath through faith alone in jesus christ and 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 for that because luther was going back to paul and and rediscovering that truth of, of, of that message and because luther was proclaiming it luther was put on trial and presiding at the trial was charles v now charles v was the emperor of the holy roman empire And he had the power, very easily, to put Luther to death. It probably would have been burning at the stake. But before that happened, they gave Luther a little bit of time to think it over. So why don't you reconsider what you're you're saying here? There's still time. Why don't you retract your statements, recant your, your, your views, and bring them in line with the prevailing religious establishment. In essence, what Luther had to decide at that moment was whether what he was teaching were the words of men or the word of God. And, of course, his often-quoted response goes like this. Luther said, Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict one another. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound to the Scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Now, do you see what he said? He said, look, if what I'm saying is the word of, was the word of man, if I were to be able to be convinced that it was, just, it was just, just human words, then I'd be forced to reconsider. I'd be forced to change them, because I know, right? We can, humans can, can get it wrong. We can disagree. We can contradict one another. But, but if the message is the word of God, then I'm willing to endure the consequences, because it's the truth. It's not a lie. But even more than that, so it transforms our suffering because we, because we know that, because, we're actually, because, because if we suffer for something is true and not a lie, then we know we have an inner conviction because of it. But even more than that, the message that Paul is preaching transforms our suffering because it gives us real hope in the midst of it. Now, Luther, as it turns out, was not executed, didn't end up being executed. But remember, Jesus was also mocked, was also ridiculed was also put out of the, the inner circles of society, was beaten, and ultimately executed. Jesus stood before a trial, remember? Was asked to recant his claims, not just teaching the Word of God, but from, from actually, his claims actually claiming to be the living Word of God. He was asked to, to give it up, given an opportunity to, to escape execution. And he too, like Luther, refused, but in his case, like Paul tells us in verse 15, Jesus was killed. Now, stop right there. Just there. Just even, even if it stops there, you have the beginning of a hope that comes in the midst of, of your own suffering because for whatever you might not understand about why God might be allowing you to experience suffering and pain, you can't look at the death of his own son and conclude that God does not understand what it feels like to be rejected, to be put out, to be misunderstood, to suffer even to die. Even if it just stopped right there, you have have the beginning of being able to have hope and suffering, but it doesn't stop there. God raised Jesus from the dead. He didn't didn't stay dead. Chapter 1, verse 10. And, And when you believe in that message, then you have real hope in the midst of suffering and pain because you know that this is not the end, that even death has been defeated as a result of what he's done. Now, I need to take a moment here and talk about something that actually isn't the main thrust of what Paul's talking about. But because of our, because of our cultural context today, we have, to, we have to address it. We have to address it. maybe it occurred to you as we read through, and read through verses 15 and 16, but even if it didn't occur to you, I, I assure you it's, it occurs to others on a regular basis. Look at these verses again. Paul's talking about the Jews. He says, verse 15, "...the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out." They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Okay, so here's the question then. Here's the question that even if it wasn't in your mind is in the minds of lots of people when they hear this text. Is Paul being anti-Semitic here? Isn't this just another proof of how how Christians are are, are bigoted, how, how how they get it wrong? Right, because this is one of those passages that's cited, uh, cited at times by, on one extreme by those who would, who would, who would seek to justify their, their, view, their anti-Semitic views or cited by others on the other extreme to, to say, see, I told you so. Look, is, this, is what, this is what Christians really believe. Now, now I suppose at first we should define what we mean by the term. Legan Duncan, who's a seminary president, also a pastor, he has a very helpful definition. This is what he says. Anti-Semitism, he says, is the suspicion of the hatred for or the discrimination against the Jewish people because of their religious or ethnic heritage. Suspicion of, hatred for, or discrimination against the Jewish people because of their religious or an ethnic heritage. Now, to be very clear, and so there's no, absolutely no confusion or ambiguity, anti-Semitism is not what the Bible teaches. Right? It is, in fact, sin. And that doesn't mean that people haven't used the Bible or even claimed to be Christians and yet nonetheless taken views that very much fit that definition that Legan Duncan offers. Even people with great insight into the truth of Paul's message of salvation have been blinded by their culture in this this area. My use of Martin Luther as an illustration just a minute ago was not an accident. Luther was someone who in in many of his later writings appears to have gotten this wrong or at least slipped into a tendency to misunderstand what the Bible is teaching at this point. And it is important to to understand, to remember, that no teacher of grace, no teacher of the forgiveness of sins is above his own need for it. But it's also important to keep in mind that no culture is ever the determiner of what is true. So we're able to look at Luther and what he may have written later in his life about the Jews and say, I don't think that's right. But we don't, aren't able to say that. We don't say that on the basis of, saying, of looking at our own culture and kind of saying, I think our culture today gets it right. And our culture is better than their culture. And as a result, this culture trumps that culture. No, because culture, like humans, can get it wrong. If we have any basis to be able to look At those who would use verses like this to justify anti-Semitism, if we have any basis for it, it's not in the basis of a superior culture; it's in the basis of the Word of God itself. It is our ultimate authority, and so we go back to it as the as the source. Now, I had in my in my original notes, I like five big categories of different reasons about why Paul is not teaching at this point anti-Semitism. But let me just let me just point out uh, let me just point this out. Remember that Paul himself was a Jew. And Paul, as a Jew, had a deep abiding love for his own people. If you read, go back and read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 from the book of Romans, and you'll see that Paul had an incredibly deep, passionate love for his own people. And remember that Paul is not charging them of doing anything here. In in, in charging them, charging the, the Jews of the time, in charging them, as, as being persecutors of the, of the Christian church, he's not, he's not telling them, he's not saying of them anything that he doesn't know is absolutely true of himself. Paul participated in all these kinds of things before he understood the truth of the message that he now proclaims. He is the worst of those who would do these kinds of things. He's not putting himself above them. In fact, he comes at it with extreme humility. And if you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you see that. Let me just quote two passages. First, in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He passionately wants them to know the truth of the message that he is proclaiming so that they would be saved. He wants them to be rescued. And it's not just a philosophical point that he's trying to make. It's not just for the sake of of winning an argument. In fact, even more than that, in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, he takes it a step further, a really big step further. He says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. Do you see what he's offering? you think about that? He's offering to trade places with the people that he's talking about here. He's offering to be eternally damned If taking their place would be possible, so that he would be able, he would go to hell if they would be able to be saved. No anti Semite would make a comment like that, would make a statement like that. And a statement like that, a willingness to endure the wrath of God in place of another, there is no statement that could bring one closer to what it actually means to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Because that is exactly what Jesus did for us. And that's exactly what brings us back to the point that we've been making. Believing in Paul's message about Jesus to be the Word of God transforms our suffering. It makes us willing to, be su- to suffer even for those we don't, even on behalf of those we don't agree with. And it's okay to not agree. It's okay, as Paul kind of says, to, to, to say that other people, we think they get it wrong. We don't think that they understand Jesus correctly. It's okay to do that. And it's very possible to do that in a way that is humble. That is, that, is, that is compassionate, that is loving. That's what Paul is saying here. So believing the message of Jesus taught by Paul, that it's the word of God and not men, it transforms the way that we live, transforms the way that we suffer, and finally, it transforms the way that we serve others. This is where we go back to our running start in verse 9, because verse 9 and verse 10, they're, they're connected. Listen again to the point Paul's making. He says, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Now, what's Paul doing here? Is he just putting himself on the, patting himself on the back, talking about how great an apostle he is? No, he's making the point that his, his motives in bringing this message to the people, his motives are pure. When they preached the gospel to the, to the Thessalonians, they weren't doing it to make a buck. They weren't doing it to, for financial gain. And they weren't doing it in a way that it was exempting them from the same kind of righteous requirements that he was urging them to, to keep. No, they did it out of love, the kind of love that a father has for a child. And they could only do it, at least they could only do it consistently, if the gospel of God that they were preaching was actually the word of God. Now, I don't want to overstate the case. You probably know people that, act, that serve other people quite well. and They don't believe in this God. They serve them. But what I would argue is that, is that you can serve people, but you can't really serve them completely unless you preach to them the gospel of God, unless you actually offer to them the solution to what is their greatest need. Now, again, if the gospel isn't the Word of God. If men just made it up, then, then who cares? But if it's true, if people really need to be rescued from the, from the wrath of God, and, the, and, and if it's true that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the way of God's rescue, then, then how can you really serve someone, really love them, if you will not share with them the message that will transform their lives, share with them the message that will transform their, 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 their ability to endure suffering, that will that will give them an eternal hope that can be never taken away. How, how can you do that? You, do you know what had us searching for the, for what has had us searching in closets this week? When we, when we found this, you know what had us looking. We had we had gotten uh, an email a couple weeks ago actually. One of the one of the members of our congregation had gotten an email from a guy who used to be a part of our congregation, and he reached out to reached out to this guy who he knew was still here at the at the church, and he asked a question that some people might find a little bit strange. But what he wanted to know. He wanted to to know the night that he became a Christian. He was trying to find find the exact date. Now, he knew roughly how old he was at the time. He was about 10 or 11, which would have placed the time frame somewhere in the early 1970s. But more importantly, he knew the name. He had never forgotten the name of the man who was preaching as a special guest that evening. And so Christy Nagley, our office manager, with the busyness of VBS the week before, now behind her, she, she took up the challenge this week. And so she, she went looking, and she found the box. <laughs> she found the box that had the bulletins from that time period, and she went through and she found it. And she found it. April 8, 1973, the Reverend George Slavin was a guest preacher in this church, and he preached a sermon entitled, Return Unto Me in this Sanctuary, 1973. And a man by the name, a young man, 10-year-old boy, by the name of Dave Hoover, realized at that moment that the gospel was true. It was true. It wasn't just the words of man. It was the word of God. And he put his faith and his trust in Jesus that night. Now, why did he care? Why did he need to know? Why did he want to know? Because over the last 45 years since that night, the truth of that message has been proven out because he knew that night that the message of the word of god had taken root and over the last 45 years he has seen the transformation and he wanted to go back and he wanted to praise god for the date someone lovingly serving this church took the time to explain the gospel the word of god and that gospel touched the heart of a 10 year old boy now you might not have a pulpit with an audience to preach to in a, in a public gathering. But if you're a Christian, you know someone who needs to know about this Jesus. Or maybe you're the, the 10-year-old boy or the equivalent of the 10-year-old boy. Maybe you're wondering if it's true. It is. The reliability of the manuscripts the historicity of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the transformation of Paul himself, the growth of the early church, the willingness of so many throughout so many generations to suffer and die for their faith, they all testify to it. And God is calling you to believe it and to be transformed. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would strengthen us. Strengthen us in the truth of the gospel that we would know and understand what it is you have done for us, that we would rejoice in that, that we would believe it, and that our lives would reflect it so that everyone would see it clearly. Lord, we pray that we would be proclaimers of it. In Jesus' name, amen.